Amen. Well, good morning. You guys ready for potluck? Well, bad news. You've got to wait about a half hour. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter uh, 4. Uh, we're glad that uh, we're able to uh, kind of take a look at a different passage today. The youth group has been working their way through Galatians for the last uh, while. Uh, and so if you're a youth here, that's okay, because I think most of you guys were actually sick the day that we did this in youth group. So uh, Galatians chapter 4 is where we'll all be, probably for the first time. Uh, so I'd like to share with you a specific part of the series that we're doing that has been fruitful for us and fruitful for the group uh, as a whole. And so that's why we're going to be in chapter 4. We're just going to be in the first half, those first 11 verses And so leading up to this, because you haven't been with us for the whole series because you're not all in youth group, uh, leading up to Galatians 4, Paul is uh, addressing some things that are happening in the Galatians church, Galatians churches. And so he he starts chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning away from the gospel. And and this is a, he's writing to both Jewish and Gentile believers. So he says, you're turning back to your roots from whence you came, which for the Jewish believers, that's the the Old Testament law. And for the Gentile believers, that's the, whatever religion they came from. Uh, And we're talking all uh, largely pagan religions there. And so from there, Paul decides to, he's defending the gospel uh, with, uh, much fervor because it's, it's a life or death issue for the Galatians. And so he's defending the gospel as it is given to him directly from God. And then he tells us that all people, not just the Jewish people, but all people can be justified, made right before God by faith in Christ alone. And the key word there is alone. There's nothing else, he tells them, that can solve their sin problem, which we've talked a lot about the last few weeks. But uh, So then the question that he poses them is, well, why do we even have the law? Because he knows that's the natural question. Well, if I don't have to obey the law, why even bother having it? Um, and his clarification is that the law doesn't save you. The law still has value. It shows us we need a savior. It shows us what God's character is, what his standard is, what is it? how excellent and uh, just he is. And it shows us that we cannot fulfill it. We cannot be saved by our works. And so he even references, on the way to chapter 4 here, he even references Abraham. From Genesis 15, Abraham is credited as righteous before God. But if you catch the passage, if you want to look back on your own here, uh, Abraham's credited righteous because he believed, he had faith in God's promise. And so as Paul has told us that through Christ, we can have access to the blessing that God promised Abraham. And again, to get you the spark notes on that Genesis passage, he promises Abraham that he will make him a great nation. And through that nation, he will bless all nations. And so we are also going to have access to that blessing because that blessing is our salvation. We are heirs to this salvation because we are children of God through faith. We are heirs of a promise. And so today, Paul's going to take this section of salvation by faith, and he's going to wrap it up by reminding the Galatians who they are. Not who they were, but who they are now in Christ. And so, therefore, we also can know who we are. I think the best way to explain this, though, because he's going to start with an illustration that probably doesn't um, have much uh, relevance in our at least immediate culture here. So the best way to do this is probably going to give you a, a two analogies, and the first one I need your help with. In the United States of America, how old do you have to be to vote? 18, and all of the adults 
said amen. Uh, <laughs> so the question is, well, why do you have to be able to, why do you have to wait till you're 18 to vote? What do you think? You can answer, it's okay. We're looking for maturity, right? We're, there's, there's something yet to be gained before you're, you're making these monstrous decisions, right? And so up until the age of 18 in the United States of America, you are a minor. You are not an adult. And so who is in charge of a minor? Not a major, but an adult. Uh, <laughs> and there, what is a parent's job? to raise their children, to uh, raise them up, hopefully, in the ways of the Lord, to grow them, to equip them, to help them mature. And so we can look at the world and we can realize, does every parent do this well? N- no, but that's okay. Uh, nonetheless, it is the parent's responsibility, as it is their role, to raise, grow, and mature their children. So in Roman society, which is going to kind of branch us back to Paul here, in Roman society, inheritance and voting age uh, are really tied together, and they happen around age 25. Uh, so they, uh, which, oddly enough, the life expectancy wasn't horribly long, so it seems like an awfully late age. But nonetheless, age 25 is what we, what we find. And so this is going to help us understand Paul's uh, illustration here in chapter 4. So let's go to those first three verses, Galatians chapter 4. Paul says this, I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, uh, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And perhaps just reading that and thinking about that voting analogy, we can start to make connections on our own. But just, to, just for clarity, we're going to go piece by piece here. Remember, Paul is talking both to Jewish and Gentile Christians. And so he's describing to them a wealthy family. like Think like royal family kind of thing is like probably as close as we get today. Uh, there is something significant to inherit for this, this heir. And we see the heir is a child, and, and they have a, a teacher, uh, an overseer, somebody who is taking care of them, who's raising them uh, until they are of age. And I, I think, for my own childhood, I, I, I would ask, my dad would ask me to do this thing or that thing, and I, as any kid asks, the question is, well, why must I do that? Why? Dad, why? And his response, because he read a lot of Calvin and Hobbes, uh, was, it builds character. Uh, and it does, it does, and it's the same idea here. <laughs> and so the heir is being taken care of, likely by a servant, if it's a wealthy family. And even though this heir is going to have this big inheritance, they're under the same rules, probably even more so than the, the servant that is like, in charge of them, while they are to grow and to mature until they're of age. And so before this coming of age, the heir has no access, no rights to their inheritance and the word that Paul uses here, it's literally translated as infant. And that's important because it, there's immaturity that comes with infant. Physical immaturity, but also uh, emotional and spiritual immaturity that's in play here. And so we see the, the, the inheritance is held until the father says it's time. And so we get to, to verse 3, and the roles here are clarified. And it's, uh, again, it's an analogy here. We're heirs of blessing from chapter 3, which is what he had just talked to the Galatians about. We're heirs to this blessing, we're heirs to this inheritance, and it's going to be given, it was given, has been given, in the Father's time. But until then, he says, we were like slaves. 
This is probably not our modern context of slaves, but probably more of a bondservant type of thing here. We are held captive, he says, by principles of this world. Some of your your translations might say the elemental things of this world. We'll, We'll catch that in a second. And this is to tell us where we were before the gospel. This is where the whole world was before the gospel, before the death of Christ in our place. Either they were deceived by a false god or a pagan religion, it's just the Gentile believers here, or they were under the old covenant, which is the Jewish believers, and the, the truth of the matter is that neither one of those things was able to save those people and make them right before God, and the same applies to us today. And so let's talk these principles of the world. Again, if you have, I think the NIV has it as the elemental things of the world, and it's a difficult uh, thing to translate from in the original language, but both of those ideas that you see translated there are, are actually tied together here. So Paul's likely addressing two things all tied up in one. And the first one is uh, the law. The second one is, again, those pagan religions and notably their demonic presence. Paul's established that the law, again, in the previous chapters, is not able to save anyone. It's not able to make us righteous. It shows us our unrighteousness. And this would be the elementary principles for the Jewish believers that they're bringing to the table. And on the Gentile side, we look at the, the, the pantheon of uh, Greek and Roman gods. Think of like uh, Zeus, Apollo, uh, all of those, uh, that category of, of little g god. And so these are, these are false gods, which we know. But it's understood in, the ti- in that time, and I, I think it still applies today, that Satan was at work through those false gods. And so these, these Gentile believers came from this background where they would try to appease these gods, but appeasing Zeus, appeasing Apollo is not going to save the Gentile Galatians. And it's not going to save uh, them any more than the law could save the Jewish Galatians. But false gods, specifically we're talking this pagan religion here, they bring into, work, into view the, the work of Satan and his deception in our lives. Ultimately, whatever background the Galatians, whatever background we're coming with, uh, the principles that they were under, they grew up with, are insufficient to save them. And that's the point that Paul's getting to. And I, I would actually say they're powerless to save them because there's only one who is powerful to save. Nonetheless, Satan is trying to use these things that they have brought to the table, these things against the Galatians, and he does the same thing with us today. Okay, Satan has a lot of tools in his tool belt, and we don't like to talk about the tools in the tool belt because it's, it's, I don't know, scary. But nonetheless, they're there, and all of them serve this single purpose of drawing you away from Christ, which is the only name that you might be saved with. The only means of eternal life and life abundant. And so when Jesus, he died, he rose again, he broke us free of these elementary principles of having to uh, appease uh, false gods or having to earn our, 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 our ticket to heaven here. And instead, he brings us not only into uh, heaven with him, as we can look forward to an eternity, but he brings us into a relationship with a loving God and shows us that God is a loving God. And so Paul, he's, he's bringing now the work of Jesus into view in the next uh, few verses here, and he's going to use it to teach us about God and how we as uh, humanity now, children of God, hopefully, how we can experience a relationship with him. So let's pick up verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, uh, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive uh, adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so Paul's been very clear throughout the whole letter of Galatians that if and only if we have faith uh, in Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, if we have faith there, we will receive grace from God and peace with God. We can receive salvation. Now Paul's told us that at God's appointed time, our promised inheritance became available. And that happened because of the work of Jesus. But there's something important to draw out of this relationship between God and us. Salvation begins with the work of God. God stepped in and pursued us. God initiated the relationship. Spurgeon says this, We did not move toward the Lord, but the Lord towards us. Do not find that the world in repentance sought after its maker. No, the offended God, himself in infinite compassion, broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. See how spontaneous is the grace of God. All good things begin with him. So without God pursuing us, which we can see here plainly, without God pursuing us, we would still be lost in our sin. We'd be hopeless, uh, subject to these, these elementary principles that we had brought into the picture. But God, in his goodness, in his rich mercy, which we can read out of uh, Ephesians here, uh, in his rich mercy, he, he reached down to us and he made us sons and daughters. And instead of holding to that truth that God pursued us, Paul's opponents, who are deceiving the Galatians here, they're trying to persuade the Galatians that God won't accept them unless they're righteous on their own. And nowhere in the gospel, nowhere in the whole of scripture, uh, nowhere do we see self-righteousness leading to heaven. Jesus rebukes uh, the self-righteous Pharisees. Paul has been very clear that actions aren't what saves you. Instead, Paul is teaching that God, a loving God, pursued sinful humanity and bestowed upon them grace, his unmerited favor. And so because of this grace, he came in the flesh. Jesus came in the flesh, and he came to redeem us from the law, and he came to bring us an eternal hope that there is something more. And that hope is based solely on faith in Jesus this grace, our salvation, it's what brings us into the family of God, which is part of what Paul's talking about here. We can read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so Paul continues here. He says that, that not only are we, are we adopted, that are we saved by the blood of Jesus, but that we're given the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is present in us today if we profess faith in Jesus. And in that Spirit, that Spirit in us, we cry, Abba, Father. And it's important that we have that Spirit. And it's also it's important that we remember how Paul starts this chapter. Before the new covenant, before Jesus' death on the cross by which we're saved, Paul says that before that we were under a strict teacher. The law was able to show us our sin. It showed us we need a Savior, but it also acted as a teacher. It taught us about who God is, what his character is, what he values, what he expects of us, 
what righteousness is, what the will of God is, and who we are because of a holy God. And yet, we're freed then from the law. We're freed and given the Holy Spirit as our new teacher. And that's, again, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It now lives in you and me if we have trusted in Jesus for our eternal hope. And so while we had the law to instruct us about the will, about the character, about God, about us, we now, Paul tells us, have an infinitely better teacher, the Holy Spirit in us. And so while we talk about, uh, when we talk about salvation through faith, uh, rather than by our works, uh, in, in this case in Galatians, the law, uh, some or most people will say, well, if I'm not saved by my works, then I can just ignore the law. And that is very tempting, isn't it? Uh, but while the law doesn't provide us salvation, it does teach us well, right? We just talked about all these things, righteousness, holiness, the character of God, who God is, that he exists, are all present. And these things are not bad, they're not like, they are useful, yes? But the law didn't give us the power to love and to obey God. That's why the Spirit's essential. The Spirit has power. The Spirit's a better teacher, uh, but it also gives us the power to know and to follow the will of God. In Romans uh, Chapter 10, verse 9, the call to salvation there, it tells us to confess Jesus as Lord. Holding Jesus as Lord of our lives, it's going to build in us a desire uh, to live like he did, to love like he did, to be holy as he was. And now we have the Spirit to enable us to do that, to shape us into who God has called us to be as humanity. Paul's also said that that same spirit is what helps us cry, what cries from within us, the words, Abba, Father, which we can reference to Jesus uh, in uh, John, and he cries this out to God, but do you know what Abba means? It's this infinite, or not infinite, the intimate, different letter, intimate word for Father. But a lot of times when, when scholars talk about the word, it's, it's Abba, right? It, it, it comes from baby's babble. Like, in English, we get da-da or mama, right? Baby's first words or just eh, something like that, right? So Abba is supposed to be rooted in this baby's first words, uh, but it, it develops into more than that. And, and uh, again, it's more than this. In Hebrew culture, and, and for us today, we, we, we don't call many other people mom or dad or mother and father, depending on uh, what house you're raised in and all of these things. But they would not call anybody other than their dad Abba. There's a relationship there. I, th- I think uh, we all, well, we'll talk, about, I'm not a father, so we'll talk about some that I know. The Meyer kids, they're here at basketball camp the other day. Uh, how they talk to Benjamin, they go, hey, daddy, can I blah, 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 or yes, daddy, I will go do this. But the other day, Benjamin's recounting, and I think I've told somebody this already, he's recounting uh, their youngest, Jude, and how he doesn't like to let them sleep sometimes, because that's what kids do, I guess. And so he'll wake up, and he'll start saying, Daddy, Daddy, bed? Because he'll see Benjamin and want to go and be with him, right? And he wants to be close with his mom and his dad. And so he goes and he gets him, and then as soon as he's about ready to fall asleep, Jude will tap him on the face, get up right there in him, and he'll go, Daddy, breakfast. 
Why? Why does he do that? Because he knows that if he wants breakfast, dad, dad's the one that's going to give it to him, right? He has this expectation. And, and, and Benjamin does do that, and albeit he might want to sleep for another hour or two or three, but he's the one that does that. He cares for his children. And so there's, again, this personal aspect to the term Abba. It's for a father who cares deeply for his children, who loves them, and who is present with them. This is very different than the God the Pharisees present uh, in the Gospels. It, it's, it's through the Holy Spirit, and only through the Holy Spirit, crying out through us, Abba, Father, that we can have this intimate relationship with God. The Spirit will lead us to cry out. It'll change the cry of our heart, and it'll be to our Father God, who in his love and in his mercy, he adopted us. He made us sons, made us heirs to the promise and to the kingdom. And so now we have the Holy Spirit. We have an Abba now. And this is much different than someone who is a master, which is the illustration he starts with. Paul began this, this chapter, he calls us children. We're under a guardian until we are of age. And, and Paul calling us sons now, he tells us that it's implying that we're of age to participate in our inheritance. We're no longer slaves, but we're no longer like slaves, stuck under the rules and principles, but now we are grown, matured sons and daughters of God. And because we are sons and daughters of God, we have access to that inheritance, which is salvation. In this inheritance, our salvation, our future eternity with God, it brings us hope and it brings us freedom from having to to earn our way. We're free to not be enslaved to the law and we're free to not be enslaved to any of Satan's means to draw us away from God. We're free to be able to live lives that are guided by the Holy Spirit as children of God. And there's nothing that can take that away from you if you've professed faith in Jesus Christ and if he's Lord of your life. And so we know as believers today, that, that as Paul is teaching the Galatians here, if we are children of God, then we can experience true freedom. Freedom to live as sons and daughters of God. Freedom to be taught and led by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's taught us, he's taught us the truth of salvation. He's taught us the gospel. He's taught us who we are in Christ. We're sons and daughters, loved. But he's worried for the Galatians. Remember, he started this whole, the, the whole book with, I'm astonished at you. You're turning away. And it's a plea for them to not do that. And so he, he, he is worried for them. He calls them uh, to live like who they are in Christ. To live like they're heirs. Not only that, but they're co-heirs with Christ. That verse we read this morning, Romans eight seventeen says this, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so, if we're co-heirs with Christ, uh, we should let our lives echo the statement like this found in in Lamentations chapter 3. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in the Lord. To find our everything, our hope, our satisfaction, our faith, our sustenance, would be the natural response, the natural way of living for someone who has now this faith in Christ, who has a new Father God, and who has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And so we would expect here in this chapter then for Paul to start to instruct us on what it means to live this way, to live a life guided by the Holy Spirit, to give some kind of encouragement to help the Galatians get there. And he'll do a little that later, but remember Paul's writing because He's worried for the Galatians. They've put their hope in in a false salvation, in their works. 
And so instead of ending with an encouragement, Paul ends this section with a rebuke. It's a call to action for the Galatians. Uh, Let's pick up verse 8. He says this, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So when Paul uses the word afraid here, he's not worried for himself. He's worried for the Galatians. He knows that everything is at stake. Their souls are on the line here, and he, uh, his witness to them was not for nothing, but he, know, he, he knows that they need to turn to God. And so Paul's life work, we can read, was to tell people of this gospel because he knew eternity was at stake. And so his passion, as he pleads with the Galatians, is driven by the exact same thing. He wants them to find their salvation through faith in Christ alone. And so for, here to, for, for us today, uh, the gospel, it might be something we've heard, it might be something that we profess to believe, but the gospel has to take root a little further than an intellectual acknowledgement. We have to treasure the gospel, we have to treasure our Savior, our God, and we have to make him Lord of our lives and our hearts. So how do we keep from being like the Galatians? tempted to turn and find our hope in things that are worthless to save us. It starts by prizing our redemption and prizing our sonship. So through redemption, we have gained this inheritance, right? This redemption to be prized. We've gained an inheritance. We've, We've gained a loving Father God, and we've gained the Spirit of God within us. So let me ask you, the question here, the imperative is, do you prize your redemption? Do you prize your eternal hope? Do you prize your Abba? Or do we take them for granted? When we try to make our faith about us, about our desires, rather than about the gracious gift that, we have in, that was initiated by God that we have inherited, inherited, when we try to make it about us, we're taking God and we're trying to fit him into a mold that we like. And so you've heard the famous sermon, or at least you've heard the title of it. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But when we try to fit God into our little box, what it turns into is we take a little God and we put him in the hands of angry sinners. And when we do this, we fall right back into the principles that we came with. We fall right back to the principles of the world rather than being led by the Holy Spirit. And so the question remains, do we prize our redemption if we prize our redemption, we're going to free from what can, can lead us away from our redemption, what can make it of any less importance to us. Anything that detracts from it is something we should be fleeing. And so when we prize our redemption, we're, we remember that we're able to enjoy freedom in Christ. And we're free to live this life with the very Spirit of God within us, guiding us, perfecting us, until we're with God in heaven. And so when we prize this redemption, when we prize our God, when we prize our eternal hope, when we prize the Holy Spirit, then we're going to begin to be transformed into the image of God, the image of Christ. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And this is what happens when we prize our redemption. 
we become who God intended us to be. And so the, the question that the Galatians are faced with and the questions that we are faced with in the day-to-day is, well, why would we turn back? If we have so much to be prized, why would we ever turn back? This is why Paul's astonished. The Galatians have put everything at risk, and when we uh, do likewise, we put our everything at risk. The Galatians are, are more worried about their cir- status of circumcision, which is what they're being confronted with, uh, and, and following dietary law. The, 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 they're more concerned about those things than they are about prizing the redemption and prizing the spirit that lives within them. And so for us to turn back from the gospel, for the Galatians to turn back from the gospel, leaves us hopeless. Without God, without his standard of truth, his standard of righteousness, without God, righteousness is determined in the court of public opinion. Most of us have, have observed the court of public opinion, and we know this, the court of public opinion is always changing on what is good, true, and righteous. The world encourages you to put yourself, to put your desires, to put your preferences, your values over everyone and everything in this world. And so what we end up with is we are like blinded rats. We're lost in this labyrinth of sin until by God's amazing grace, we who were all lost in the maze of self-justification are truly and everlastingly found by faith in Christ. The gospel calls us to place our Lord God who created us, who loved us, who pursued us, who saved us, to place our Lord God over everything and to let the Spirit of God guide us in our every step. He calls us to delight in our Heavenly Father. And this is is what Paul means when he talks about freedom, delighting in our Heavenly Father. And so everything that Paul is teaching up to this point can be summarized in Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And further, if, if we're children of God, then we can experience... Uh, true freedom, life in the Spirit. Paul would tell, us, would tell us that freedom is found in God's grace, not works or principles. And actually, if we go back to the beginning of, of Galatians, we go to chapter 1, verses, uh, one or chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 says this. In his greeting, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says that peace, he says peace to you through the grace of God. And that grace of God is what saves you, what adopts you, what sustains you, and that gets us peace. And one of the beautiful things about that that section of verses uh, is the way it ends. It's the response of someone who treasures their God, who prizes their redemption, who delights in a holy God, and that is that they glorify God.